Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss an aviation pioneer, a famous photograph of the Loch Ness Monster, and a brief change in the Coca-Cola recipe. The events took place on April 18th, 21st, and 23rd. April 18, 1915. French pilot Roland Garros is shot down and glides to a landing on the German side of the lines during World War I. Roland Garros was a French pioneering aviator and fighter pilot during World War I and in the early days of aviation. During a summer vacation in 1909, at the age of 21, he saw the Grand Semaine d'Aviation de la Champagne an aviation meeting which ran from August 22nd to the 29th. After this, Roland knew he had to be an aviator and began training immediately. He started his aviation career flying a Demoiselle monoplane. Also known as a damselfly or a dragonfly, the aircraft only flew well if it had a small lightweight pilot. He gained his pilot's license the following year in 1910. In 1911, Garros graduated to flying Bleriot monoplanes and entered a number of European air races with this type of aircraft, including the 1911 Paris to Madrid air race and the Circuit of Europe, in which he came in second place. On September 4, 1911, he set an altitude record of 12,960 feet. The following year, on September 6, 1912, after Australian aviator Philip von Blaschke had flown to 14,300 feet, he regained the height record by flying to 18,410 feet. By 1913, he was flying faster monoplanes, and on September 23rd, he gained fame for making the first non-stop flight across the Mediterranean Sea in the south of France to Bizerte in Tunisia. The flight lasted for nearly eight hours, during which time Garros resolved two engine malfunctions. The following year, Garros joined the French army at the outbreak of World War I. Reports published in August of 1914 claimed Garros was involved in the first air battle in world history and that he had flown his plane directly into a Zeppelin, destroying the airship and also killing its pilots and himself. This story was quickly contradicted by reports that Garros was alive and well in Paris. The early reports maintained that an unidentified French pilot had indeed rammed and destroyed a Zeppelin, However, German authorities denied this story. Later sources indicated the first aerial victory against a Zeppelin occurred in June of 1915, and earlier reports have been discounted. In the early stages of the air war in World War I, mounting a forward-firing machine gun on combat aircraft was considered by several people. As a reconnaissance pilot, Garros had made several attempts at shooting down German aircraft. However, these efforts were unsuccessful due to the difficulty in hitting an aircraft with a handheld carbine. He visited a French aircraft manufacturing company called Moraine Saulnier at the end of 1914 to discuss the problem. Raymond Saulnier started working on a synchronizer before World War I and took out a patent for a workable mechanism on April 14, 1914. However, circumstances beyond his control resulted in its being tested with the Hotchkiss 913 machine gun which proved unsuitable due to an inconsistent firing rate. As a workaround, Garros, with the help of his mechanic, Jules Hugh, developed protective wedges, 
which were fitted to the slightly narrowed propeller blades which deflected the occasional round which would have otherwise struck the propeller. With the workable installation now fitted to his Moraine Saulnier monoplane, Garros made history on April 1st, 1915 by shooting down the first aircraft with a forward-facing mounted machine gun. Two more victories over German aircraft were achieved on April 15th and 18th. The same day as his third victory, on April 18th of 1915, Garros was hit by ground fire and came down in German-controlled territory. He failed to destroy his aircraft before being captured, where the Germans recovered his machine gun and the armored propeller. A Dutch aircraft manufacturer, called Fokker, had been working on a system for at least six months before Garros' aircraft fell into German hands, but this convinced the German military to request a similar mechanism. This led to Fokker's aircraft shooting down many Allied aircraft in what became known as the Fokker Scourge. After almost three years in captivity in various German POW camps, Garros managed to escape on February 14, 1918, along with fellow aviator Lieutenant Ansolme Marshall. They made it to London through the Netherlands and from there returned to France where he rejoined the French army. Garros claimed two more victories on October 2, 1918, before he was shot down and killed three days later, on October 5th. He died one day shy of his 30th birthday, and the war ended a month later. Here's my take on Roland Garros. Total badass. It's rare to find someone with that much courage and determination. April 21st, 1934. The most famous photo allegedly showing the Loch Ness Monster, commonly referred to as the Surgeon's Photograph, is published in the Daily Mail. The Loch Ness Monster, a.k.a. Nessie, is a creature in Scottish folklore that is said to inhabit Loch Ness in the Scottish Highlands. It is often described as large, with a long neck, and with one or more humps protruding from the water. Many have said it resembles a plesiosaur. Popular interest and belief in the creature has varied since it was brought to worldwide attention in 1933. There is no evidence of a creature in the lock, aside from a number of disputed photographs and sonar readings. The scientific community explains alleged sightings of the Loch Ness Monster as hoaxes, wishful thinking, and the misidentification of mundane objects, such as logs and ripples in the water, or a variety of common animals, such as eels and otters. The surgeon's photograph is reportedly the first photo of the creature's head and neck. Supposedly taken by Robert Wilson, a London gynecologist, it was published in the Daily Mail on April 21, 1934. Wilson's refusal to have his name associated with it led to it being known as the surgeon's photograph. According to Wilson, he was looking at the lock when he saw the monster, grabbed his camera, and snapped four photos. Only two exposures came out clearly. The first photo shows a small head and back, and the second shows a similar head in a diving position. The first photo became well known, and the second attracted little publicity because it was blurry. For 60 years, the photo was considered evidence of the monster's existence, although skeptics dismissed it as driftwood, an elephant, an otter, or a bird. The photo's scale was also in question. It is usually shown cropped, making the creature seem large and the ripples seem like waves. 
while the uncropped shot shows the other end of the lock and the monster in the center. The ripples in the photo fit the size and pattern of small ripples rather than large waves. Analysis of the original image fostered further doubt. In 1993, the makers of a documentary called Loch Ness Discovered analyzed the uncropped image and found a white object visible in every version of the photo. It was believed to be the cause of the ripples, as if the object was being towed, although the possibility of a blemish on the negative could not be ruled out. The full photograph indicated the object was only about two or three feet long. Since 1994, most agree that the photo was an elaborate hoax. It had been described as fake in an article in the Sunday Telegraph from December 7th of 1975. Details of how the photo was taken were published in the 1999 book, Nessie, the Surgeon's Photograph Exposed, which contains a copy of the 1975 Sunday Telegraph article. The creature was reportedly a toy submarine built by Christian Sperling, the son-in-law of Marmaduke Wetherell. Wetherell had been publicly ridiculed by his employer, the Daily Mail, after he found what he described as Nessie footprints that turned out to be a hoax. To get revenge on the Mail, Wetherell perpetrated his hoax with co-conspirators Sperling, a sculpture specialist, Ian Wetherell, his son, who brought the material for the fake, and Maurice Chambers, an insurance agent. The toy submarine was bought from F.W. Woolworths, and its head and neck were made from wood putty. After testing it in a local pond, the group went to Loch Ness, where Ian Wetherell took the photos. When they heard a water bailiff approaching, Duke Wetherell sank the model with his foot, and it is presumably still somewhere in Loch Ness. Chambers gave the negatives to Wilson, and Wilson sold the first photo to the Daily Mail, who then announced that the monster had been photographed. Here's my take on the surgeon's photograph. This photo holds a very special place in my heart. I remember seeing it in a library book as a young kid and becoming infatuated with the Loch Ness Monster. I checked out a bunch of different books on Loch Ness and dinosaurs. I rented every shitty movie and watched the repetitive documentaries anytime they were on. The photo and the idea of the Loch Ness Monster was so fun and I wanted more. Then I got older and realized it didn't exist, and that was disappointing. But the documentaries are still pretty fun to watch. April 23rd, 1985. Coca-Cola changes its formula and releases New Coke. The response is overwhelmingly negative, and the original formula is back on the market in less than three months. After World War II, Coca-Cola held 60% of the market share for cola. By 1983, it had declined to under 24%, largely because of competition from Pepsi, who had begun to outsell Coke in supermarkets. Coke maintained its lead largely through vending machines and fast food restaurants. Market analysts believe baby boomers were more likely to purchase diet drinks as they aged and were more health conscious. Growth in the full calorie segment would come from younger drinkers who at the time favored Pepsi by increasing margins. Meanwhile, the overall market for colas steadily declined in the early 80s as more consumers purchased diet and non-cola soft drinks. When Roberto Goizueta became Coca-Cola CEO in 1980, 
He told employees there would be no sacred cows in how the company did business, including how it formulated the drinks. Coca-Cola's senior executives commissioned a secret project headed by marketing vice president Sergio Zyman and Coca-Cola USA president Brian Dyson to create a new flavor for Coke. This project was named Project Kansas, from a photo of Kansas journalist William White drinking a Coke, which had been used extensively in Coca-Cola advertising. The sweeter cola overwhelmingly beat both regular Coke and Pepsi in taste tests, surveys, and focus groups. The South, one of Coca-Cola's strongest and most reliable markets, narrowly preferred the new flavor and widened once the testers revealed the new taste was also a Coca-Cola product. One bottling company even threatened to sue Coke if it did not put the drink on the market. Management rejected an idea to make and sell the new flavor as a separate variety of Coca-Cola. The company's bottlers were already complaining about absorbing other recent additions into the product for a few years. Diet Coke was launched in 1982, and Cherry Coke was introduced in 1985 as well. Early in his career with Coca-Cola, Goizueta had been in charge of the Bahamas subsidiary. He improved sales by tweaking the drink's flavor slightly and was very receptive to the idea that changing the flavor of Coke could boost profits. He said it would be new Coke or no Coke and that the change must take place openly. He insisted that the containers carry a label that said new with an exclamation point, which gave the drink its popular name. New Coke was introduced on April 23, 1985. Production of the original formulation ended later that week. The press conference at New York City's Lincoln Center to introduce the new formula did not go well. Reporters had already been fed questions by Pepsi, which was worried that New Coke would erase its gains. Goizueta described the new flavor as bolder, rounder, and more harmonious, and defended the change, calling it one of the easiest decisions we've ever made. A reporter asked whether Diet Coke would also be reformulated, assuming New Coke is a success. To which Goizueta dismissively replied, No, and I didn't assume that this is a success. This is a success. The new formula's sweeter taste also ran contrary to Coke's advertising, in which spokesman Bill Cosby had touted the original Coke's less sweet taste as a reason to prefer it over the sweeter taste of Pepsi. The company's stock initially went up after the announcement, and market research showed 80% of the American public was aware of the change within days. Coke sales increased by 8%. The big test, however, remained in the South, where Coke had first been tested and bottled, and the southern states did not respond very well. The company received over 40,000 calls and letters expressing anger or disappointment. The company hotline received over 1,500 calls a day compared to around 400 before the change. A psychiatrist hired to listen in on calls told executives that some people sounded as if they were discussing the death of a family member. After the announcement on April 23rd, Pepsi gave its employees the day off, saying, By today's action, Coke has admitted that it is not the real thing. They also took advantage of the situation by running ads in which a first-time Pepsi drinker exclaimed, Now I know why Coke did it. Despite ongoing resistance in the South, New Coke continued to do well in the rest of the country. But executives were uncertain on how international markets would react. Executives met with international Coke bottlers in Monaco. To their surprise, the bottlers were not interested in selling new Coke. Zyman also heard doubts and skepticism from his relatives in Mexico, where new Coke was scheduled to be introduced later that summer. The disappointment began to spread. 
Tribune writer Bob Green wrote pieces ridiculing the new flavor and expressing anger at Coke's executives for making the change. Comedians and talk show hosts, including Johnny Carson and David Letterman, made regular jokes mocking the switch. Ads for new Coke were booed heavily when they appeared on the scoreboard at baseball games. Even Fidel Castro, a longtime Coca-Cola drinker, contributed to the backlash, calling new Coke a sign of American capitalist decadence. Even Guizueta's father expressed similar misgivings to his son, who later recalled that it was the only time his father had agreed with Castro, whose rule he had fled from Cuba. Guizueta stated that Coca-Cola employees who liked New Coke felt unable to speak up due to peer pressure, which happened in the focus groups doing taste tests as well. Coca-Cola's director of corporate communications, Carlton Curtis, revealed over time that consumers were more upset about the withdrawal of the old formula than liked the taste of the new one. Some consumers even began trying to obtain old Coke from overseas, where the new formula had not yet been introduced, as domestic stocks of the old drink were exhausted. And some Coca-Cola executives had quietly been arguing for a reintroduction of the old formula as early as May. Coca-Cola chemists then quietly reduced the acidity level of the new formula in June. In addition to the noisier public protests, boycotts, and bottles being emptied in the streets, the company had more serious reasons to be concerned. Its bottlers were expressing concern. They were not enthusiastic about the taste. Most of them saw great difficulty promoting a drink that had long been marketed as the real thing, constant and unchanging, that had now been changed. Over 20 bottlers ended up suing Coca-Cola. Finally, the Coca-Cola board decided that enough was enough and plans were set in motion to bring back the old Coke. Company president Donald Keough revealed years later that he visited a small restaurant in Monaco and the owner proudly said they served the real thing. It's a real Coke, offering them a chilled glass bottle of original Coca-Cola. On the afternoon of July 11, 1985, Coca-Cola executives announced the return of the original formula, 79 days after New Coke's introduction. The original recipe was now branded as Coca-Cola Classic. On the floor of the U.S. Senate, David Pryor actually called the reintroduction a meaningful moment in U.S. history. Coca-Cola president said, All the time and money and skill poured into consumer research on the new Coca-Cola could not measure or reveal the deep and abiding emotional attachment to the original Coca-Cola felt by so many people. There were a number of marketing issues that followed the reversal of new Coke that created issues in the upcoming years. The original recipe was now Coca-Cola Classic, and the reformulated recipe was called Coke 2 until it faded away. Bill Cosby ended his longtime advertising for Coca-Cola, claiming that his commercials praising the new formula had hurt his credibility. No one at Coca-Cola was fired for the change. Goizueta claimed that he had never once regretted the decision to change Coca-Cola. He even threw a 10th anniversary party for New Coke in 1995, and continued to drink it until his death in 1997. When Goizueta died, the company's share price was well above where it was when he had taken over 16 years earlier, and its position as market leader was even more firmly established. In May of 2019, Coca-Cola announced that the 1985 reformulation, once again bearing the name New Coke, would be reintroduced in limited quantities to promote the third season of the Netflix series Stranger Things. The show is set in 1985 and included cans of new Coke in three of the season's episodes. 
about 500,000 cans of new Coke were produced for the promotion to be sold mostly online. So many people were eager to order new Coke that the volume of orders crashed the Coca-Cola website. It was also available in select vending machines in cities such as New York and Los Angeles. Here's my take on new Coke. I like Coke, and I'd probably like new Coke if I tried it too. But they probably should have launched it as a separate product instead of reformulating the entire recipe. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. I don't give a shit. April 18th, 1930. The British Broadcasting Corporation, also known as the BBC, announced that there is no news in their evening report. What? Seriously? They did that? April 21st, 1952. The first celebration of Secretary's Day, which is now called Administrative Professionals Day. Ridiculous. You can see why they changed the name, too. Happy Secretary's Day. Now go make me a sandwich. April 22nd, 2016. The Paris Agreement is signed, an agreement to help fight global warming. Even more ridiculous. The Paris Agreement. Complete nonsense. I don't know how else to say it, but if nobody really follows the rules, then what's the point? And I just don't care if anyone follows the rules either. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time. Along with fellow aviator Lieutenant Anselme, along with fellow aviator Lieutenant Anselme Marshall, Marshall, along with fellow aviator Lieutenant Anselme Marshall, Anselme, Anselme, along with fellow aviator Lieutenant Anselme, <laughs> damn it.